Good morning, church. There's a lot of water bottles up here. If I grab the wrong one, let me know. I am blessed to be here with you today. Um, as Josh said, my name is Steve. I'm one of the assistant pastors at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. And I just want to say on behalf of our church back home and our pastor, uh, Pastor Joe Foch, our warmest greetings to our brothers and sisters here in Kenya. Uh, I'm so excited to be here with you. This whole week has been just really a wonderful time with you all. You have welcomed us so graciously. Uh, this is my my third time overall to Eldoret and Calvary Chapel here, uh, but it's my first time I've been able to do it with my entire family, so that's been an extra blessing as well. I've been married for 21 years, my beautiful wife, and we have four children. And I tell people, Josh mentioned, we, we have had the privilege of, of living in various places around the world, and, and I've consistently told people that my favorite place to worship is right here in Calvary Chapel Eldoret with you all. So. Uh, it, yes, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is here with you guys. This is a great church. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be looking in the book of Ephesians today. So you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Book of Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around the year, between the year 60 and 62 AD. It's what's known as a prison epistle because it was written by Paul while he was in prison. Prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And the book overall is a wonderful book. Um, it's, if you were to study it, you could almost divide it in half. The first three chapters of the book would be more doctrinal teaching. There's some of the great foundational teachings of the Christian life within those first chapters. Uh, chapter one talks about that we were... Uh, chosen before the foundation of the world, that we were predestined to adoption as sons and daughters. And chapter 2, you've got just that phenomenal explanation of salvation that most of us are familiar with. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace we have been saved. Through faith, right? And it's not about works. Uh, so just phenomenal teachings there in those first three chapters. And then the chapters 4 through 6 were more about practical Christian living. How do these things that I know work themselves out in my life, right? How do I apply these things to my life? And so there's just great practical stuff for us. Um, you know, what we're going to talk about today is walk, walking worthy of our calling and walking in unity. It's going to talk about spiritual gifts later in the chapter. Chapter 5, you know, it, it talks about us um, you know, drawing near by the blood of Christ is going to give instructions for marriage. Chapter 6, right, it's like putting on the armor of God, some very foundational stuff, but how do we do that? So we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 4. <clears throat> I'm going to read them, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump in. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 
And Lord, I pray as we now look at your word that you would speak to us, Lord. I pray that your word would come alive in us. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 1, Paul says, he, he beseeches them, he says, to walk worthy of your calling. But as we read through that little section there, there's a word that jumps out to us because it's repeated over and over. And as you study the scripture, you look for things like that, words that are repeated. And there's a word that's repeated many times over and over here in these first couple verses, right? What is that? It's that word, one. So this passage has an emphasis, has a focus on oneness, on unity. This is what Paul is going to say. What he recognizes is that one of the requirements, not suggestions, one of the requirements of walking worthy of our calling is that I live peaceably with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not with the outside world but with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the key to understanding this exhortation by Paul is to, is to try to get into the mindset of Paul and how he viewed himself before God. So let's look at this. He says, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. For the prisoner then and for the prisoner now, your life is no longer under your own control. You wake up when you're told to wake up. You go to bed when you're told to go to bed. You eat when they say it's time to eat. You go outside when they say it's time to go out. You come in when it's time to, say it, when it's time to come in. Your life is no longer under your control. And if you think about a prisoner, it would be foolish if it was the other way around, right? If the prisoners were telling the guards what to do. Hey, guard, I want more chicken. Bring me some chai. I want to go out now. No, that would be chaos. And the point is, the prisoner, because of what he has done, has lost the right to be in control of his life. Now, Paul is in a Roman prison, and yet he does not say, he does not identify himself as a prisoner of Rome. What does he say here? He says, Paul a prisoner of the Lord. You see, Paul is able to see beyond his physical circumstances. It would have been very easy for Paul, I think, because I know my own heart, it would have been very easy for Paul to be frustrated, upset, possibly even angry at the things that had happened to him. Think about his life. Think about what he was doing. Saying, man, Lord, I am... Traveling from city to city to preach your word, to tell people about Jesus, and I'm being laughed at, I'm being ridiculed, I'm being beaten, being stoned, I'm being chased from town to town, and now I find myself in this nasty prison? Lord, what is going on? Lord, I'm serving you. Why is this happening to me? And we've probably all had those thoughts, right? Lord, I am serving you. I'm doing my best. And it just seems like things keep getting worse. What in the world is going on? But I think as Paul considered his circumstances, the conclusion that he came to was he was exactly where he was supposed to be. 
Paul could write to the Ephesians and say, I am in prison because he wanted me here. And if, my, if I may try to translate Paul's mindset, I think that what he is saying is that God actually has work for me to do here in prison, whether it's in my heart or, you know, he's writing these epistles, which we have today, but God has work for me to do here in prison in my life that would not be accomplished if I was on the outside. In this storm that Paul was in, and in that storm of life that you may be in, there is work that God is trying to do in your life that would not be accomplished if that was not happening. And that's really a remarkable perspective, right? And if I can begin to train my mind in this way, uh, it, it completely changes everything. It changes my entire approach to life. If I'm doing what God wants me to do, and I'll add this in there, I'm not compromising sin, because that's a whole different issue, right? But if I'm doing what God wants me to do and I'm living righteously before him, then every situation I encounter, whether it's good or whether it's bad, every situation I encounter, I am in that situation because that's where he wants me to be. He is doing something in my life in the storm that would not be accomplished in my life if things were going well. So Paul finds himself in prison, but he does not see it as punishment. We can take that feeling sometimes, right? Man, everything's going downhill. Everything's going bad. God, God must be angry at me. What did I do? No, that's not the case. When I'm in sin, God does chasten his sons and children, but that's a separate issue. I'm talking about if you're living righteously before him. But we can take that feeling upon us sometimes. He's punishing me. He's upset with me. It can be very hard for us in those difficult situations to worship God and see his hand in that. But understand, guys, that, that you know, when those feelings come upon us, you know, I'm sick. Lord, why am I so sick? I lost my job. God, what's going on? Why are you doing this to me? My child is sick. I've lost a loved one. God, what is happening in my life? Those why questions that we tend to ask, right? For the Christian, when you find yourself in the middle of that, we need to understand that there's something he's doing in our lives through that that would not be done otherwise. You say, okay, but what does that have to do with unity? You see, my mindset towards God and my situations actually has a ripple effect. You guys understand a ripple? Does, do you know what this is? If there is calm water and I throw a rock into the water, it begins to ripple out, right? See, my mindset towards my life, my mindset towards God, will actually affect my mindset towards others. Have you ever noticed that in your life? I've had those times. Right? Josh said... Uh, you know, I, when I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed um, with something in English we call Crohn's disease. It's a, a fairly serious illness, and I've been sick on and off throughout my life ever since then. I've been through a lot of difficulties, and I, I don't want to get into that. My testimony is more of the faithfulness of the Lord. But I've had those times where I have been very sick, and it's difficult for me to understand, and I'm frustrated, and the truth is I'm frustrated with the Lord because I don't understand, but what I end up doing is taking it out on my family, 
right? Have you ever done that? I'm actually upset with the Lord, but I see my wife and my kids, and I don't treat them right. And you really need to look at your heart when you find that happening. You know, most of us would say, I want God's will for my life. I want God's will to be done in my life. Most of us would say that, right? I want God's will done for my life. But most of us, what we really mean when we say that is I want God's will for my life as long as it lines up with what I want for my life. And when that doesn't happen, when God chooses a different path than what I want, we fight against that. When I become frustrated with God, it makes me frustrated with others. When I'm angry with God, it can make me angry with others. When I mistrust God, will cause me to mistrust others. And the Apostle Paul would say, you need to throw all of that out. If my life situation is causing me to lash out at other people, to be angry with them, whether that's rejecting them, ignoring them, some sort of anger, mistrust, the issue is actually not with that person. The issue is with God, and it's a hard issue. I want control. But me wanting control of my life over God is like the prisoner thinking he should be in charge of the prison. The first key to unity with the brethren is actually having the right frame of mind in my work for the Lord. In my job, in my relationship with the Lord, is to wake up every morning, to get down on my knees and say, God, I surrender my day to you. And that has to be a daily thing. I may have done that yesterday, but that's not good enough for today because I have that inner man fighting for his own will and desires, and I need to constantly be fighting against that and surrendering my will to him, saying, Lord, conform me to your image today. Make me more like you. Lord, renew my mind today. Take out those thoughts that shouldn't be there. Lord, purify my heart today. And if I do that every day, and I find myself in the midst of a storm, that's not somebody else's fault. That means I'm exactly where God wants me to be. Now, if you're doing your own thing and you're off the path God has for you, again, that's a separate issue. But my job is to wake up and to be a servant, and the servant does not direct the master. Yes, I am a friend of God. The scripture says that. I am, I am an adopted son. We are adopted sons and daughters. I am an heir with Christ. But the way that I reveal those things to be true in my life is by serving others. And it's from that place, that, that mindset that Paul beseeches, he begs of them to walk worthy of their calling. So what is our calling? What does that mean, to work worthy of, walk worthy of our calling? And, and there's lots of things throughout Scripture that we can see, but if we, even if we just looked at Ephesians, right, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen in the midst of our sin. He looked down and loved us in the middle of our sins. Talk about the grace that's been bestowed upon us, that my salvation is not dependent on me and the good things that I do. Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship. You are his workmanship. Poema, that means his masterpiece. That's what you are. You are his masterpiece created for good works. 
In chapter 3, verses 16 and 19, it says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. These are just some of the things that we have in Christ, and this is part of our calling that we have in him. These are the things that we have been called to. So in light of who we are in Christ and all of the undeserved things that we have been given, we are to walk worthy of that. Again, we don't do anything for our salvation. Ephesians is very clear on that. But there is a way that we are to live after that that honors God and brings glory to him and to the sacrifice that he made to give us all of those things. And verse 2 begins to show us how we then do that, how we walk worthy. And he says, with all lowliness and gentleness. Lowliness is this idea of humility. One of the defining characteristics of walking worthy of our calling and a necessity of living peaceably and having unity within the body of Christ is walking humbly before our God and amidst our brothers and sisters. You see, any gifts that I have, any talents that I've been given, they were all given to me by him. There is nothing I have of my own that wasn't given to me by the Lord. Now, many of you are very talented in many different things. You're so smart, you're so talented. But we have to understand that that was all given to us by God. And the moment that I start to think that I'm something on my own without him, that's when pride has come in. And in that moment, when I start to think I'm something, I'm prideful, and I'm actually more like Satan than I am like Christ. Because that was Satan's problem, right? He said, I will be like the most high God. Satan was full of pride. The truth is, I'm just a broken human being. And any good that comes out of my life only comes when I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I need to realize that that's the same for my brothers and sisters around me. I need to realize that. When somebody offends me, it's very easy for me to say, what's going on? Why would they do this to me, right? How could they do this to me? The truth is, they're also broken human beings trying to live by the Spirit of God. And sometimes they fail just like me. So what do we do when someone injures us in this kind of way? What do we do when somebody offends us? And it seems so out of the blue we don't understand why. How do we react to that? There's really two ways that we can react to that. Sometimes we have a sense of outrage, right? How could they do this to me? What were they thinking? I didn't deserve that. I would never do that to them. I would never do that. And that causes me then to react in a prideful kind of way towards them. 
And there's a danger in that. There's actually a great danger in that. James chapter 4 tells us that God resists the proud. He actively works against pride in my life. Proverbs 3 says something very similar. It says he abases the proud, he brings them low. So understand, guys, when I respond to an offense by a brother in pride, what I've done is now I'm not just fighting against that person. I'm actually fighting against the work that God wants to do in my life. Do you realize that? That, cur- that person can be entirely wrong in the, way that I've tr- in the way that they've treated me. But if I respond in pride, I'm now going to be working against God. In this wrong that's been done to me, I can find myself fighting against God. And that's a scary thought, or it should be. You see, there's something that he's trying to do in my life through that situation. And he is. If you've been offended by somebody, and it's not because of something you've done, a a true offense by somebody against you, God can actually use that in your life to build character, to strengthen you, to strengthen you in your walk with him. And that would be his desire in that situation, to use that in your life. But when I respond in pride, now I'm actually working against what God wants to do in my life through that. James 4 goes on to say, however, that God gives grace to the humble, to those who would be lowly. You see, when I respond in humility when I've been injured, it says that God will come alongside of me and he will lift me up and he will heal me and he will allow me to then learn and do and become all of the things that he wants me to become through that situation. So we need to be really careful how we respond when we've been wronged. It's very easily, it was very easy to get in the flesh, right? And to want to jump back at that person because they've mistreated me. But listen, understand that there's something that God wants to do in your life through that, but also there's something that God wants to do in their life through that. And it might be his plan to use you in their life to bring correction or to bring instruction because they have mistreated you. And when you respond in humility, he is, they are learning a lesson through that. But when I respond in pride, not only have I messed up what God is trying to do in my life, but I've messed up what he might be trying to do in their life as well. So how do you respond when you're offended? How do you respond when you're injured? It's such a key to having unity within the body of Christ because the truth is we do offend each other. We do, right? And we have to always have that check in our spirit. How am I responding when this happens to me? And maybe the best thing to do is not to immediately respond at all, right? Most of the time, my initial reaction is not humility when somebody offends me. And so a lot of times, it's better not to immediately respond in the moment. Unless you just feel the Holy Spirit and and you know, right? If you feel that rising up, it's probably better to take a step back, pray, and say, Lord, help me here. 
because I want to respond in the flesh. But it's going to have the opposite result if you respond in the flesh. The second instruction that he says is lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, he says there. One of the ways that I walk worthy of my calling is by persevering through difficulties. And I think in the sense of unity, we would say specifically difficulties created by other people. I can create my own difficulties. But that's not long-suffering when I push through that. That's a consequence of my actions. But it's tough when somebody else has caused a difficulty in my life. But we think about Jesus. Every difficult situation that Jesus encountered in, in his life was a result of, of somebody else. But you know what we never see Jesus doing? Complaining, right? Think about it. When Jesus was tired and he was weary, it's because he was healing people all day and teaching them all day. When he faced threats, it was because he was speaking and teaching the truth. When he was crucified, it was because evil men plotted against him. But we never see Jesus complain. All these difficult situations created by the people around him that he was serving. The disciples complained, right? They said, send the kids away. They said, send the people away. They're tired and they're hungry. Translation, we're tired and we're hungry. Send the people away, right? Jesus never complained. He did speak hard truths, especially to the religious leaders, but not one time did he ever complain because he realized his purpose for being there. Now, when Jesus returns, he will come as the conquering king, but that's not why he came that first time. Matthew 20, Mark 10, they say this, Jesus says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for money, for, for many, not for money, to give his life a ransom for many. The purpose of his life was to serve others. The purpose of our life is to serve others. It's the same for you and me. Now, many of us would say that we're a servant, but the true test of whether or not, whether or not you're a servant is how you react when somebody treats you like one. Right? I can say I'm a servant of the Lord, but what about when somebody treats you like a servant? How do you react to that? That's a true test right there. He says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. In love. That means we struggle together. There are times when I fail. There's times when the people around me fail. There's times when I struggle, when I get down, when I blow it, when I make mistakes. And when that happens, too often what we do, even within the church, when somebody falls, is we step over them. And say, too bad. You shouldn't have done that. The church is too often guilty of letting its wounded suffer and die. But that shouldn't be the case. You know, this can make so much difference in somebody's life. Think about a time in your life where you were really in the middle of a difficult struggle. 
like a really difficult time. And I bet you can remember exactly how people treated you in the middle of that. And if somebody abandoned you in the midst of your troubles, if they mistreated you, if they let you behind, I bet that still rings in your ears. And you potentially still even have hard feelings towards that person. But if in the middle of that somebody came and they were with you and they stayed with you and they helped you through that time, think about the love that to this day you still have for that person who helped you through that. That's what the body of Christ should be known for, that we bear with one another in love. We wrap our arms around one another. We help them back up and we continue to walk with them. And then in verse 3, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring, it has this idea of striving or working hard. Working hard at what? The unity of the spirit. Now, I want to clarify something because these instructions are for the believer and his interaction with other believers. The non-believer does not have the Holy Spirit, right? So I don't have that foundation with the non-believer. So how I interact with them is not the same. Me walking worthy of my calling does not mean I do everything that I can to walk, worthy, to walk in unity with the unbelieving world. Romans 12 says, as much as is possible, live peaceably with all men. But sometimes it's not always possible. And the truth is, walking worthy of my calling will actually frequently put me at odds with the unbelieving world. That doesn't mean that we're jerks, right? That we're antagonistic, that we go out looking for fights. But this is spoken to believers, that we strive, that we fight for the unity amongst the believers. Now, I should spend very little of my time thinking about or concerned with how the world will respond to me when I follow Jesus. I should spend very little time thinking about that. That should not even be a concern of mine. If I do what's right, what's the unbelieving world going to think? That shouldn't be a thought in my mind because it doesn't matter. But I do want to fight for unity with the brothers. And it's not always easy because there's times that we disagree, right? There's times where I may get angry at them. But, but here's the key, guys. The unity that we have with one another in the body of Christ is not based on our feelings. It's not based on our emotions. It's not based on our beliefs even about certain minor doctrinal things. That's not the foundation of our unity with one another. The foundation of our unity with one another is the Holy Spirit, which means that sometimes... I'm going to have to sacrifice my will and my desires for the good of the body of Christ. It means that within the body of Christ, I cannot always have my own way. Unity within the body of Christ is more important than me getting my way. And that's a difficult thing to hear sometimes. See, because I can get my way and I can destroy a relationship. And when that happens, the enemies had victory. 
And destroying of relationships can put a crack in the church. And we all know the kinds of things that can happen from that. Unity is more important than me getting my way. Is that difficult? Yes. But is it worth it? Absolutely, right? Verse 4 and 5, it says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We just see this one, 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 one. The thing that can do the most harm to the church is the church. Matthew 16, Jesus is having that conversation with Peter. Peter declares that he is the Messiah. And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. See guys, when the church is functioning as it should, as a united body, There is no earthly force that can stand against it. No human wisdom, no threats, no powers of darkness. None of that can stand against the church that is living and working as it should be. Where the breakdown happens is when the church is not actually acting like the church. When we're divided, when we spend more time fighting each other than we do caring about the world that's dying and going to hell. See, the only way that the enemy experiences any victory at all is when he gets us from within. When he gets the believer to either compromise and sin or to fight against one another. If Satan has victory in my own life, it's because I've allowed it. Do you realize that? If you've had a time of sin in your life as a believer, right, if you've had a time of sin in your life, something that you look back on and you realize and you recognize that that was a bad, very bad thing that I did. Every time, in every situation, you can look back and see there was actually a willful choice on my part. I cannot blame that on the enemy. There was a willful choice. He tempts me, but at some point along the lines, I made a willful choice to do what I wanted to do. Which means that that sin that I fell into was avoidable, right? It means the enemy had victory there in my life because I allowed it. The blood of Christ has given us victory over every sin. So when Satan has victory in my life, it's because I have allowed it. When he has victory in our church, it's because we have allowed it. We've allowed him to get in and bring sin or bring division amongst us. And then verse 6, I'll finish here. It says, there's one God and one Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The same Father that's in you is in me, and it's because of that foundation that we have the Holy Spirit, that the same Father that's in you is in me, that we fight to keep the unity within us. We die to ourselves if necessary. You know, the world will try to tear us apart. Think about the last couple years Now, has there been a more divisive issue in in recent history than the the COVID-19 issues? Think about how much that divided us as a people, as a whole, even within the church. I think that was Satan's greatest victory through that. The loss of life was tragic, extremely tragic. But one of the greatest victories the enemy had in that was how he divided the church about this. And some people wanted to come to church and some people didn't and it caused them to fight. And that happened all over the world. 
There are many churches in our city of Philadelphia back home in the United States that shut down and they have never reopened. Many of them. The enemy brought great division through that, even in the church. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be with, with the brothers and sisters. We don't learn that behavior from Scripture. Yes, we separate over issues of sin. If someone is living in open rebellion against the Lord, the Scripture actually says that we put that person out of the church, right? So we separate over issues of sin. We would separate over major doctrinal things. If someone is teaching heresy about who Jesus is, we would separate from that. If it's something that is salvation related. But anything outside of that, our responsibility is to strive for unity. Not conformity. We don't all have to be doing the same thing. And not uniformity. We're not all the same, right? But we strive for unity. So what do we do? What do we do if we've been offended by someone when that happens? How? What does it look like responding in humility? I think Matthew 18 gives us what we should do there. It says if your brother's offended, you are, you are to go to that person and talk to them about it. And it says if they agree, then you have won a brother, right? And if not, then you get another person or two and you go with them and you talk with them about it. And if they still won't repent, then it says you go to the leadership of the church. That's how I respond in humility when I'm offended. It's one of the ways. Oftentimes, our first response to that is we go to other people. Did you hear what so-and-so did, right? Can you believe what they said about me? If my first move when that happens is to go to someone other than that person, I've made a mistake. And I've probably made the situation worse. So what, is, what does it look like? I think we take the steps that the scriptures told us when somebody offends us. We go to that person. We don't go to other people. We go to them. We talk with them. So unity, I think we've seen today, it starts with having a right mindset towards God. How do I view myself, right? I'm the prisoner. I'm not in charge. I don't make the rules. And I have no, no reason, no basis for being offended or frustrated when that happens. Because it means I'm exactly where God wants me to be. And within that, there is safety. Within that, there is actually glory that God will bring through my life in those difficult situations. So do you view yourself as a servant? Philippians would say that you consider others as better than yourself. Can you imagine that? If the entire church had that mindset, if I viewed you better than me and you viewed me better than yourself, almost all fighting would stop very quickly, right? If we all consider ourselves to be the servants of one another. So that would be my encouragement to you guys today. How do you see yourself within the body of Christ? As something special? Or as a servant of the brethren. Paul said, I am the least of the least. He said, I am the servant of servants. The Apostle Paul said that. Is that our mindset? Because that's the life that God will use in a powerful way. And when a church is united in that, that's a church that God will use in a powerful way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus...
Thank you for your word, Lord. And I pray now that anything spoken today that was of me and my own will would just be blown away like the chaff in the wind, Lord. But the things of your spirit, the things that you would speak to our hearts today, that we would take that into our lives, pray through it, and live it out, Lord. Go before us today, fill us with your spirit, in Jesus' name.